Good morning. I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 25. This morning, after a 12-week break, uh, we are returning to the book of Genesis. As most of you know, we're, we're going through Genesis in four stages, and we completed the second stage uh, back in, in mid-March, and this morning we begin the third stage, which will take us from Genesis 25:12 all the way through the end of chapter 35. Uh, the previous passage, Genesis Uh, 25 verses 1 through 11 brought closure to the remarkable life of Abraham. After 175 years, Abraham breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. And, And then he was buried by his sons, Ishmael and Isaac. As we move forward to verses 12 to 28, we learn of some events that actually took place while Abraham was still alive. Abraham was 140 years old when Isaac married Rebekah. You remember Isaac was born when Abraham was 100 years old. And then Abraham was 160 years old when Rebekah gave birth to Isaac's sons Esau and Jacob. And so Abraham got to spend uh, about 15 years with his grandsons, Esau and Jacob, which helps to make sense of Hebrews 11, verse 9, which says, By faith Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Nevertheless, Genesis chapter 25 brings closure to Abraham's life first, verse 11, and then shifts focus as now we're going to learn about how God's covenant is going to get worked out through Abraham's son Isaac and then through Isaac's son Jacob. So let me go ahead and read Genesis chapter 25, verses 12 to 28. Holy Scripture says, These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdiel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jatur, Naphish, and Kadima. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names. By their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. 
When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand, holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved, uh, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. This is the word of the Lord, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for giving us every spiritual blessing in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that your blessing would be upon us even now as we engage with your word, that we would discern your faithfulness and your grace and your plan, that we would be strengthened in our walk with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing you must consider, looking at verses 12 to 18, is the Lord's faithfulness, specifically the Lord's faithfulness concerning Ishmael. Uh, if, If all we had were verses 12 to 18, and that was it, all we would have is a lot of factual data. Ishmael had 12 sons, and each son became a prince over his own tribe, and thus Ishmael became uh, a nation consisting of 12 tribes, and they dwelt in the regions of Arabia in between Egypt to the west and Assyria to the northeast. There you go. And Ishmael lived for 137 years, and then he died. A lot of facts. But these facts are important because they testify to the Lord's faithfulness. Ishmael, of course, was not the chosen one through whom the Abrahamic covenant would be extended. Nevertheless, Ishmael was within the scope of the Lord's providential care. In Genesis chapter 16, the Lord promised Hagar, Ishmael's mother, when she was distressed and pregnant with Ishmael, the Lord promised her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. That's Genesis 16.10. Then in Genesis chapter 17, the Lord made a promise to Abraham. Abraham had wanted Ishmael to be his covenant son, but he had to come to terms with the fact that that wasn't the Lord's plan. The Lord had chosen Isaac. Even so, the Lord made this promise to Abraham in Genesis 17.20, saying, As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. And the Lord reiterated these promises concerning Ishmael to Abraham and to Hagar in Genesis chapter 21. Therefore, the development of Ishmael into a great twelve-tribe nation in chapter 25 is nothing less than the Lord keeping his word. The Ishmaelite nation is the Lord's doing. The Lord blessed Ishmael and made him into a great nation. 
the Lord is faithful in all that he says, including all that he says concerning pagan nations. In, in Monday school, we've been studying the book of Daniel, and there we see the Lord's active involvement in the rise and fall of nations like Babylon and Persia, Greece and Rome. The final detail in, in verse 18 that Ishmael settled or fell over against all his kinsmen is a fulfillment of the word that the Lord spoke to Hagar back in chapter 16. Genesis 16:12 says, He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So the Lord's word is settled as the Lord has spoken, so it shall be. The Lord is faithful. When Ishmael died at the age of 137 years old, we are told that he was gathered to his people. This rarely used phrase that a man died and was gathered to his people, since that rarely used phrase is only used elsewhere for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Aaron, and Moses, it might suggest that Ishmael himself had actually come to trust in the Lord. Can't be sure, but it, it might suggest that. Earlier, earlier in Genesis, we learned about the Lord's special care for Hagar, Ishmael's mother, and we also know that the Lord saw to it that Ishmael was blessed for Abraham's sake because Ishmael, too, was Abraham's offspring. Now, moving to verses 19 to 28, as important as it is to consider the Lord's faithfulness concerning Ishmael, it is even more important to ponder the Lord's sovereign choice to work out his covenant through Isaac and through Isaac's younger son, Jacob. After the Lord had promised to bless Ishmael back in chapter 17, the Lord immediately added, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac. And even though Abraham had, a, had a, a heart and a natural affection for his son Ishmael, he had to come to grips with the fact that the Lord had chosen to, to extend the covenant through Isaac. And Abraham got on board with that by disinheriting Ishmael and giving all that he had to Isaac, as we learned earlier in chapter 25. The specialness of Isaac in God's plan is set in contrast to the ordinariness of the Lord's blessing on Ishmael. The section introduced by the phrase, these are the generations of Ishmael, if you've been, going, if, if you've been here for our series on Genesis, that phrase should sound familiar. These are the generations of, these are the generations of Ishmael gets seven verses. And then the section introduced by the phrase, these are the generations of Isaac, gets 364 verses, because the next section doesn't begin until chapter 36. These are the generations of Esau. So Ishmael gets his due, but Isaac gets 52 times 7, 364 verses regarding his legacy. And so the overwhelming emphasis is clear. Now, as we look at verses 19 to 28, what is the focal point? Of, verses, of these verses. What stands out? Well, what stands out is the personal interaction between Isaac and the Lord and then between Rebekah 
and the Lord. If you took those, uh, if you took those personal interactions out of the equation, all you would have, all you would have, is a bunch of factual data. Abraham fathered Isaac, and when Isaac was forty, he married Rebecca, and Rebecca, like Abraham's wife Sarah, Rebecca was barren. But eventually she conceived and gave birth to twins, and they were a bit different, one from the other, with Jacob, with Jacob uh, favored by his mother and Esau favored by his father. A lot of data. By the way, the name Esau, Esau is named, it seems, because he came out hairy, and so I, th- I think there's some kind of, some kind of, word connection there. And then Jacob, Jacob's name sounds like the word for heel. Jacob came out grabbing Esau's heel. And so Jacob's name signifies that he is the one at the heel of his brother. But, uh, but the question is, why does this matter? Why do these, why do these facts matter? And the answer is because the Lord is personally interacting with his servants, Isaac and Rebekah. It matters because the, the twins conceived in Rebekah's womb are his handiwork. It matters because the Lord reveals his plan to Rebekah. The fact of the matter is that verses 19 to 28 are not presented in a matter-of-fact way. There is dramatic tension. First, a barren womb. And second, there is conflict between brothers in utero. Uh, Isaac responds to his wife's barrenness by praying to the Lord. And in so doing, he sets a good example for us. Are there times when we face frustration, opposition, or trial, and yet we fail to pray? We do not fail to be anxious and worried, but we often fail to pray. And we should be reminded of the fact that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ hears and answers prayer. The Lord encourages us to make our petitions about all kinds of matters known to Him. As we are taught in Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The Lord doesn't promise to grant all of our requests, but he does promise that his grace is always sufficient to uphold us. In the case of Isaac's prayer, the Lord does grant Isaac's request, and Rebekah conceives. And then Rebekah's conception sets the stage for the ensuing conflict within her womb. It was obvious to her that there was a prenatal struggle within her, and this isn't what she signed up for. She signed up to carry a child into the world, not to carry intense conflict into the world. But in this fallen world, the two often go together. If Rebecca's experience in childbearing doesn't perfectly correspond to the Lord's word in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, it at least reminds us of it and echoes of it. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. The, ver- the verb translated struggle 
in Genesis 25, verse 22, literally means to crush. There was a crushing weight in Rebekah's womb, and she wondered why. Why is this happening to me? And like her husband, Rebekah brought the matter before the Lord. Verse 22, so she went to inquire of the Lord. And Rebekah also sets a good example for us. She doesn't soak in her struggle. Instead, take heart and seek the Lord. Inquire of Him. Seek to understand the matter that is troubling you from the Lord's vantage point. And all that is happening here in verses 21 to 23 It's like a highlighter on the text that's bidding us to pay attention. The Lord did not want the conception and birth of Esau and Jacob to simply happen. Instead, the Lord wanted Isaac and Rebekah to understand that what was happening was consequential. Esau and Jacob were not conceived in Rebekah's womb willy-nilly, but they were conceived in answer to to prayer. This is special. Pay attention. And the different trajectories of Esau's life and Jacob's life were not to be discovered by careful observation decades later, but they were to be understood by divine revelation before they were even born. Abraham had to come to terms with the fact that Isaac was the chosen son and Ishmael was not. Now it was Rebekah's turn. Rebekah had to come to terms with the fact that although two sons were within her womb, the younger son was the chosen one. Just as the Lord granted Isaac's prayer in verse 21, in verse 23, the Lord answers Rebekah's inquiry with these words, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Just step back from that for a moment and just think about what is true of every child. Every child conceived in the womb represents a a consequential life. Little, Little ones are conceived and born and, generally speaking, grow up and become Fathers and mothers, grandfathers and grandmothers, great-grandfathers and great-grandmothers, and they build a, a legacy and an influence. Most of us never become famous or infamous, but, but within our own sphere of relationships, we matter a great deal. We, we, we build families, clans, tribes, some even nations. When Abraham was 86 years old, Ishmael was born through Hagar. Less than 200 years later, a caravan of Ishmaelite traders would purchase Abraham's great-grandson Joseph for 20 pieces of silver. The little fetus becomes a big factor on the world stage. So here in verse 23, there are two sons in Rebekah's womb, and these two sons represent two nations. Though brothers, these two sons would not be united as part of the same nation, but they would be divided into distinct people groups. They will be divided and unequal in terms of strength and honor. The younger son shall hold a position of strength and honor over his older brother, and the older shall serve the younger. 
We know that in the ancient world, including in the Old Testament itself, that the position of firstborn was a privileged position. And yet the Lord often bestows his favor upon a younger son. Cain was Adam and Eve's firstborn son, but the favor of the Lord was upon Abel and then upon Seth. Ishmael was Abraham's firstborn son, and yet the favor of the Lord was upon Isaac. Many years into the future, uh, uh, Eli Eliab was Jesse's firstborn son, but the favor of the Lord was upon Jesse's youngest son, David. And Genesis 25, 23 points to the fact that although Esau will be Isaac's oldest son, the favor of the Lord will be upon Jacob. When we consider these things, we have to reckon with the biblical truth of God's sovereign election. When the Lord tells Rebekah that the older shall serve the younger, he's not merely telling Rebekah what is going to happen. He's actually telling Rebekah what he has determined shall happen. He's telling Rebecca what he has decreed. And we know this because the Bible says so in Romans chapter 9. You can turn there if you want. Keep your place in Genesis. Turn over to Romans 9. I'm going to read verses 10 through 16, which is in part a reflection upon this text in Genesis chapter 25. When you're reading through the Old Testament, it's always a good idea to pay attention to those places in the New Testament that quote or allude to or refer back to the Old Testament text that you're studying. It says, in the, picking it up in the midst of Romans 9, verse 10, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The Bible confronts and critiques mankind's exaltation of mankind. It happened at the Tower of Babel, and it happens right here. Sinful mankind wants to make much of itself and little of God. Sinful mankind prefers to think of itself as the decisive shaper of world history, but it isn't. When people desire to exalt mankind and diminish God's authority, what do they do? They exalt man's will to decide man's ability to exert himself. They exalt man's capacity to work and achieve and succeed. They exalt man's power to choose what is good. If there must be a difference between one person and another, if there must be a difference between Ishmael and Isaac, if there must be a difference between Esau and Jacob, then sinful mankind wants that difference to be explained by human choices, human behavior, or social factors. 
Sinful mankind does not want to acknowledge that it is bound by the decisions of a sovereign God. Sinful mankind wants the ball to be in its own court, but it isn't. Sinful mankind doesn't want the difference to be explained by the Lord's sovereign grace. But the Apostle Paul makes clear that Esau's future conduct and Jacob's future conduct had nothing to do with the fact that God chose Jacob and didn't choose Esau. God didn't choose Jacob because he foresaw that Jacob would be a winner. Jacob didn't not, uh, the Lord did not not choose Esau because he foresaw that Esau was going to be a loser. It doesn't work that way. Esau and Jacob had this in common. They were both sinful men. Not because of their works, but because of the Lord's sovereign freedom to choose, the Lord chose to have mercy and compassion on Jacob the sinner. And he chose to not have mercy and compassion on Esau the sinner. Now, lest you think that this is a detour into abstract theology, it isn't. What the Lord tells Rebekah in Genesis chapter 25, verse 23, should actually shape the way that we read the upcoming stories about Jacob and Esau, which take us all the way through into chapter 35. When we learn about Esau's unfolding life, and the folly that he pursued, what we are seeing unfold is the fact that Esau is a sinner who did not receive compassion and mercy. Esau's unrepentant waywardness is not the reason that God didn't choose him. Instead, Esau's unrepentant waywardness is the, is the result of the fact that God didn't choose him. And the same thing is, is true when we consider Jacob's unfolding life. And Jacob had his flaws and some ups and downs, but, he's, but he's, he's being drawn into a deepening relationship with the Lord. And the fact that Jacob increased in godliness over time, that's not the reason that God chose him. Instead, that increasing in Jacob's godliness over time is the result of the fact that God chose to have mercy upon him. So what the Lord reveals to Rebekah should shape the way that we read the narrative. We actually get a glimpse into the character of Esau and Jacob in verse 27. And I have to say that I was, I was really thrown for a loop because what I realized is that uh, so often the way that the story of Esau and Jacob is explained actually does injustice to the text. I am indebted to Arnold Fruchtenbaum and other commentators for helping me understand that there is more in verse 27 than meets the eye of most of our English translations. Rarely am I befuddled at how a certain word is translated. But the translation that Jacob was a quiet man is befuddling. The Hebrew word tom that is translated quiet doesn't mean quiet. It doesn't mean mild. It doesn't mean plain. It means complete. 
It means perfect, blameless, morally intact. Okay? This word is used to describe Job. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless. Tom, blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. This word is used to describe the righteous man in Psalm 37. Mark the blameless, Tom. Mark the blameless and, uh, and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace, Psalm 37, 37. The word is used to describe those who are persecuted by the wicked in Psalm 64, 4 and Proverbs 29, 10. Proverbs 29, 10 says, bloodthirsty men hate one who is blameless, Tom, and seek the life of the upright. The same word is even used by the man in the Song of Solomon to praise his radiant bride, my dove, my perfect one, Tom. My perfect one is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. Given the evidence of the word's meaning and its common usage, Genesis 25, 27 is actually saying that Jacob was a perfect man, a blameless man, a complete man, in much the same way that Noah was a blameless man. Noah was the blameless man of stage one in Genesis. Abraham was the blameless man of stage two in Genesis. Jacob is the blameless man in stage three of the book of Genesis. This doesn't mean that Jacob didn't have any flaws, but it means that that the trajectory of his life was unto the Lord. As Henry Morris puts it, and I quote, Jacob, in God's evaluation, was a perfect man. This does not mean he was sinless, of course, and neither was Job, but his heart was right toward God, believing his word, caring for his family, earnestly seeking the will of God, and preparing for the future ministry which God had revealed to his mother before he was born. And then we're told that... Jacob dwelt in tents in verse 27. And as Hebrews 11.9 tells us, he did so with his father and grandfather. The point is not that Jacob was a homebody, but that he was in proper alignment with the family heritage and the family mission. By contrast, Esau was disconnected from the family. Arnold Fruchtenbaum puts it this way, and I quote, Esau was a skillful hunter just as Nimrod was a skillful hunter, not a compliment. In the context of Genesis, being a skillful hunter is not a positive statement, but a negative one. Furthermore, Esau was a man of the field, meaning he chose to work outside the family unit. To continue the biblical description of Jacob, he was dwelling in tents, which again is misconstrued to picture him as mama's boy, but that is not the meaning of the phrase. Rather, it means that he chose to labor within the family clan unit. He chose to follow his family's profession, that of a shepherd, as was true of Abraham and also Isaac. Taking on the job of a shepherd was not the job of a sissy. Therefore, we see a trajectory from the prophecy of verse 23 to the summary evaluation of Esau and Jacob in verse 27 to the unfolding events of their lives in the verses and chapters that follow. Jacob, despite his flaws, is the blameless man who follows after the Lord. Esau, despite his abilities, is the immoral man who throws away his, who throws away his heritage and makes a shipwreck of his life. It's exactly how their story unfolds, and it's introduced right here in verse 27. And again, I remind you, this difference in their character, 
is not the basis of the Lord's decision to choose Jacob and reject Esau. The Lord chose Jacob out of pure grace, and Jacob's increase in godliness was the result of the Lord's choosing him. Now, one more detail that I want to bring in from Romans 9. Uh, the Romans 9 passage sheds, sheds light on another part of Genesis chapter 25. Think about the phrase, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, which is a quotation from the prophet Malachi. Malachi chapter 1 verses 2 and 3 says, the, the, the Lord says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yes, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Now contrast the Lord's assessment of Jacob and Esau with their parents' assessment. Verse 28, Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Do you see the contrast? Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated in contrast to Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, Isaac has a problem. Okay, now, it's important for you to hear, hear what I'm about to say here. At, at the mere level of practical parenting, Genesis 25, 28 is not a recipe for success. When dad favors you know, one kid and mom favors another, family politics are bound to get really interesting. But this passage is not about parenting. It's not about parenting, and what I'm about to say is not about parenting either. It's about something much, much bigger. It's about being in alignment with God's plan. And this passage is about God's plan to extend the line of covenant blessing through Isaac and through Isaac's younger son, Jacob. So the fact that Isaac loved Esau on account of their shared love of wild game, it points up the reality that Isaac is going to have to learn the same thing that Abraham had to learn. Abraham had to, he, he had a natural affection for Ishmael. And he had to let Ishmael recede in his affections so that he would be rightly related to his covenant heir, Isaac. Now, Isaac needs to learn that lesson. And if you know the story, tragically, he was very slow to learn that lesson because he was on the cusp of giving the covenant blessing to Esau. Isaac was out of step with the plan of God. But Rebekah, to whom the Lord had revealed his plan, she knew and she loved the covenant son. Two lessons, briefly. One hard but clear lesson from this text is simply to humble ourselves under God's sovereign decisions. We need to shift our eyes from our works, our will, our exertions, our conduct, whether good or evil, and we need to focus our attention on the Lord's work, the Lord's choice, the Lord's grace. Don't remain stuck on yourself, but lift up your gaze to the eternal God who governs the affairs of men. Lift up your gaze and trace the line of covenant blessing all the way to the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom it was told to Mary by the angel Gabriel 
And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And then John chapter 6 teaches us that the work that God requires of us is not to be preoccupied with our own works, but instead the work that God requires of us is to look to the one whom he has sent, the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. Behold the work of God, the provision of God, the mercy of God, the salvation of God. The second lesson from this text is not to let the first lesson lead you into a cold and unfeeling fatalism. The Bible is remarkable in the, in the array of truth that it presents, and people often have a difficult time holding all that the Bible says together because we're, we're weak, we're sinful, we're foolish, we're immature. And some people get a hold of the doctrine of God's sovereignty, and then they infer that nothing that they do matters. Other people know that what they do must matter, and so they dismiss what the Bible teaches about God's sovereignty in passages like Genesis chapter 25 and Romans chapter 9. We must admit that in our weakness and sinfulness, we have a difficult time holding together what God holds together, but that is our problem, not the Bible's. The problem is with, is with us not with the truth. We must have a robust view of God's sovereign authority to do whatever he chooses to do. And at the same time, we must understand that God interacts with us in real time, in real ways. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer. That's not unfeeling fatalism. The children struggled together within her, within Rebecca. So she inquired of the Lord, and the Lord spoke to her. That's not cold determinism. This is, this is real people with real hearts and minds and aspirations and struggles going to the Lord, expecting to obtain an answer, and he answers and shepherds his people. Later on, Jacob is going to wrestle with the Lord and win the blessing. That's how the Lord relates very personally to his people. So while we must be anchored in God's sovereignty and in his absolute authority, we must also be encouraged and energized to seek the Lord diligently, to call upon his name and to engage personally with him in prayer. Maybe, maybe you lean, you know, maybe you, you got the sovereignty part down, but you really struggle in the practical, like, Engaging with the Lord, you need to be encouraged to seek the Lord and pray and expectantly study His Word. On the other hand, if you, if you're, if, if you, if you, if you know that your life matters, but maybe you think that too much of it depends on you, then you need to, you need to come to grips with the fact that God is sovereign. He's the one writing the story. And we need to make sure that we are getting in alignment with what He is doing. Let's pray. Father, uh, I pray that one moment at a time, one day at a time, one portion of Scripture at a time, that you would instruct us 
that you would correct us, that you would renew us, that you would get our hearts and minds and lives a little bit more into alignment with your word and your plan and your grace. Father, I pray that you would work mightily in our hearts, that we might, that we might seek you with our whole hearts and walk faithfully before you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.